Welcome back to the official Sasta podcast brought to you by myself, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC and the godfather of Sass himself, the legend that is Jason Lemkin. I also want to thank you for making our first week on iTunes so memorable. We were featured in Apple's What's Hot and the new and noteworthy section on iTunes. So a huge thank you to you for that. And now on to the show today. And this is one which was recorded at the main event itself, Sasta Annual 2016. And joining me for the episode today is Shardul Shah, partner at Index Ventures in San Francisco. Now, Shardul really is an exceptional member of the Index team, as he's the only member of their team to have worked in all of the firm's offices around the world, in Geneva, in London, and San Francisco. And Shardul has been with Index since 2008, and he very much focuses on infrastructure, security, and software, having made investments in the likes of Dropbox, Squarespace, and Adaloom, which was acquired by Microsoft, just to name a few of the companies in his incredible portfolio. But before we dive into the interview today, if you're loving the official Sasta podcast, then please do leave us a review on iTunes. It makes such a difference and we would be so grateful. You can also hit us up on Twitter at JasonLK and at Harry Stebbings. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. But enough from me. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Shardul Shah, partner at Index Ventures. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Shardul, absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today and a massive congratulations on the promotion department. Thank you. Now, I'd love to start off by hearing a bit about your background and how you made the move into the wonderful world of venture. Sure. Um, As many things in life, I think it came down to being in the right place at the right time. So uh, when I was in college at University of Chicago, I ran into, literally ran into Stephanie Zocco whose husband happened to be one of the founders of Index Ventures. And uh, we hit it off. We had great chemistry. She invited me to spend a summer with Index for 10 weeks in Geneva um, in 2004. That turned into 12 weeks. They they couldn't get rid of me. And uh, a few years later, I I rejoined Index full-time. Between Index and college, I knew I wanted to be an investor, but recognized that at that moment in time, no investors were really coming on campus to recruit young folks out of college. Mm -hmm. So I ended up cold calling every venture capital firm in Chicago, everyone in Boston, and everyone in California, and eventually came to a a private equity firm called Summit Partners. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was looking for someone to cold call entrepreneurs. And so it seemed like a match made in heaven. I, I flew out the next day after my cold call to Summit to see them in, in California, had a job offer that evening, um, and, and I was off to the races. And, and what do you make of then the kind of career VC path, if you, if you get where I'm going with that? Is that something we're seeing a lot more of? You say uh, investors didn't come to university campuses to recruit. Do you think we will see an evolution in the industry in that respect? Uh, I don't think it's an evolution. Um, I consider myself really fortunate to be an exception to many rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I were giving myself advice, and, and when I meet young folks at Chicago, for example, that uh, seek me out, um, I tend to, uh, to advise them to take a different path. Generally speaking, I think what makes a great investor is the ability to form conviction quickly, um, and to support companies long-term. And the common denominator between conviction and support is network. So the question, the interesting question to me becomes, if you want to be an investor over a certain period of time, 
how do you maximize the probability that you have a dense network that can enable you to create conviction and support companies long term? And I don't think actually being a career VC optimizes for that goal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, I, I do understand that. And, and I wanted to start off with, with one of the most important elements of, of business and of, of, yeah, of businesses in general now, and that's the product itself, obviously. And you've said before, I've read, I've read some of your posts about beautiful craftsmanship in products. And I wanted to hear what you feel really makes a great SaaS product. I mean, what, what really creates that customer stickiness to you? Um, so two questions there. Uh, one is, how do I think about craftsmanship? And, and second, what are some of the characteristics I look for in um, a SaaS product? So in terms of craftsmanship, I think it's about attention to detail. There's this odd obsession over minute details that you tend to see again and again as you meet more and more real craftsmen. It's hard to kind of put um, it into like a, a formula, right, or an algorithm, but looking for that sort of obsession uh, from a product-oriented team it is a founding recipe mm-hmm. for creating um, a, a beautiful product that's highly usable. Uh, functionally, what I look for are kind of two elements. I look for companies and products that reduce time distance to value. By that, I mean business models that benefit from enabling customers to identify utility very, very quickly. So uh, we had invested in a company called Squarespace many years ago. Um, We were stuck in New York City due to the ash cloud, uh, if you remember, in 2010. And we met Anthony Casalena, and he was at that point in time working on a web publishing software, right? We're all familiar with kind of the Super Bowl ads and and the taxi ads now. At that time, it was a relatively uh, straightforward CMS. Uh, Pixel perfect, but it was a relatively forward CMS which required a lot of customization in order to get uh, to a, a website. Fast forward to today, there is an incredible marketplace of templates, which I use for my wedding website, which enables individuals to get to the end product much more quickly. And as a consequence, become, to your point, sticky customers that are loyal, We've that are retained, uh, and, and sometimes even grow uh, long term. So for me, the, the first ingredient is um, is really time distance to to value. I can frame this in different ways. And for some companies, we think about this as like an eight minute POC. Uh, for other companies, we think about this as 30 seconds to to value. And, and, and it can be true for security SaaS companies. Mm-hmm. So Odalum, which is a company that we were fortunate to invest in and was acquired by Microsoft last year, is in this challenging industry of security where the number of vendors has 5xed over the last three years. And as a consequence, buyers are overwhelmed with the number of solutions they can choose. Um, In that market, imagine a CISO who hears basically the same pitch 10 times a day, doesn't have a mechanism to identify what's truly different. The way Odalum sold to um, FireEye, which is actually a security company, so mm-hmm. it's odd that they were a buyer of another security solution. But the way they sold to FireEye was demonstrating literally in eight minutes that they could go from no implementation to a fully working product, basically blowing Craig Rosen, the CISO, away such that he not only did he become a customer, became, he became an advisor and wanted to invest in the company. And I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled you spoke about security there and selling CSAs because it's, it's exactly on our schedule. Uh, oh, cool. You didn't see it. Um, so, I mean, I mean, just before we dive into that, I mean, talking, going back to the great product there and one of the main um, catalysts, some might say, for the evolution of many more great products is, is the rise of open source. 
um, and the freedom that that's given. What's your take on the open source community and, and the kind of inherent uh, risks and flaws to it and, and how security can play a part? I think open source is mainstream. And so I don't think of it in terms of the rise of open source, um, although there clearly is a wave. When companies like Target have a center of excellence around open source in middle America, you kind of know that it's that it's mainstream. From a community standpoint, I think one of the challenges in, in investing in commercial open source is uh, ensuring that you're investing in the custodian of the product roadmap. Um, there are communities uh, that have become splintered and fragmented. And as a consequence, there are many different views on which direction a product should go. And that ultimately ultimately becomes much more difficult to commercialize. Mm-hmm. And so how to actually manage a open community with a commercial business is very, very difficult. And in and of itself would be, you know, a several day long conversation mm-hmm. um, outside of, community management, um, as a consequence of open source becoming mainstream, it, it follows kind of another key trend, right, which is speed matters, right, more so today than ever before, right? My view is every single category will be dominated by a technology-oriented business in the future. And for a technology-oriented business to differentiate itself, it will rely on speed. And as part of speed, um, not only will processes change from waterfall to agile, for example, mm-hmm. but components of software development will change from custom code to open source uh, pieces, right? Which allow you to more quickly stitch together the fabric of your software. The nature of open source suggests that it's actually a common denominator amongst multiple products in different places. From an adversary standpoint, so if you think about the labor supply of individuals, whether they're nation states or criminal syndicates or individual hackers who are looking to launch campaigns for you know, economic gain or political gain or whatever, right? The economics have changed and they're magnified, they're amplified, right? When there is a common denominator mm-hmm. because the marginal cost to uh, launch the same attack twice is, is close to zero. Mm-hmm. So um, open source uh, represents a new attack surface. Um, And as a consequence, it requires a new security model. And this is very different from where the industry was five years ago due to the need for speed, uh, the use of agile processes, the mainstream nature of of open source. So I think that that's a you know, pretty significant opportunity, uh, and and it's difficult. It, it's difficult to expect that the community, in and of itself, will manage cleanliness uh, because open source. There isn't like an inventory of open source today for any any single enterprise. And we spoke there earlier about CSOs and selling CSOs. It can, it can be quite tricky, as you said, with the sheer number. Uh, of sales to CSOs. So, so why 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 do you think it is tricky? Is it more than just a sheer number? Uh, and what's the effect of this uh, difficulty? Yeah, there are um, there are a couple of different um, forces at work here. So, again, if you zoom out, um, there is a core labor supply issue in security. We talked about the adversary landscape, and again, this the the tooling adversaries use to launch attacks has dramatically changed. We've talked about kind of the number of new attack surfaces that are common, like mobile, like cloud, like open source. So the the number of places where they can launch productive um, 
attacks has increased and the cost to become an attacker has decreased mm-hmm. um, while kind of the rewards have improved, right? The magnitude of credit cards that you can steal as well as the liquidity of the dark net marketplace where you can sell on credit cards has totally changed. Mm-hmm. So effectively that labor supply has uh, really grown exponentially. The number of practitioners um, who are involved in securing companies has remained relatively static. And this is like, again, go down the supply chain. Like universities are not graduating security practitioners at a fast enough rate. The government is starting to. Um, it's doing well in Israel, actually, less so in, in the United States and the UK. Is, right? that, is that because of their bullish uh, attitude to conscription into the cybersecurity network that they have? No, I think there there are there are just um, a lot of reasons why individuals graduate from the army and go into industry, and the same dynamics are not at play in the United States or the UK yet. And when we talk to policymakers in the UK government, they're keen to understand what Israel is doing. Um, personally, I haven't spent as much time with the CTO office or the the intelligence agencies in, in the US as I have in the UK and Israel to, to understand how they're thinking about it. But by nature. You know, when I look at the practitioners um, in D.C. or in New York or on the West Coast or Middle America, they don't have as many graduates from um, the intelligence agencies, number one. Number two, in the United States, there's an incredible attrition rate. Like the average tenure of a security professional in the enterprise is roughly nine months. So individuals are getting offers very frequently that are very attractive. And as a consequence, they keep moving on. And it's not only on the practitioner level, it's also at an executive level. If you look at the data over the last three years on CISO compensation, it's going through the roof, Mm -hmm. right? And part of the reason is because there's this uh, security budget that's opened up as a consequence of high-profile breaches, Mm -hmm. right? But fundamentally, the number of decision makers is relatively static when the number of attacks has grown exponentially and the number of vendors, like we said, has grown 5x. So number one, they don't have time. Right. They literally, the bottleneck is time. They cannot evaluate all of the companies in a fixed period of time. Mm-hmm. So the time distance to making a decision has lengthened. Number two, in many, not all, but in many pockets within security, there's not a single vendor. There are seven or sometimes 30 vendors. And as a consequence, if I'm a CISO or I'm procurement for an enterprise, there's an opportunity to negotiate. And the end result is dollar sizes of deals are getting smaller. And we're right now we're just talking about enterprise security, right? So with longer sales cycles and smaller deal sizes, the implication that you're asking about is pretty obvious, right? It becomes more capital inefficient to build a security business, mm-hmm. which is why you need to think through, I think, go to innovative go-to-market strategies. And the fundamental question that you're asking is, should we sell to the CISO is a really good one, right? Are there other entry strategies into security budget, for example, via engineering or development or operations or legal or, or elsewhere, such that you can penetrate enterprises and have a uh, decision maker that can give you more attention. And do you think that penetration funnel is much, much wider than the uh, traditional kind of narrow view of CSOs? And is that expanding with time and with the emerging uh, number of, of security startups? It's it's early innings. It's kind of happening now, right? So there's this emerging area uh, of sec DevOps or DevSecOps, right? A lot of folk talk. Uh, a lot of folks talk about DevOps in general. Uh, and, and there's been a lot of success there with companies like New Relic, and mm-hmm. and and um, uh, and you know we're involved in a company called Datadog, uh, which is do, doing super well. Um, SecDevOps is the next iteration. Um, I, I I think it 
Uh, I'm very bullish on the possibility of SecDevOps, um, uh, but some view that as contrarian. So I wouldn't say it's clear uh, mm-hmm. today. And I'd love to dive into the 60-second SASTA. So, so it's like a quick-fire, um, yeah, 60-second response. Cool. Let's go for it. Let's do it. So what are your concerns in the, in the SaaS space in general now? Interesting question. So what I'm concerned about is people confuse great companies for good companies, and that's not a sign of the times. It's constant. Um, and the difference uh, enables companies to focus on overinvesting in growth as opposed to capital-efficient growth. And so when we spend time with our companies or companies that we're looking at investing in, what we try to um, really think through is how do you focus your business, not have too many uh, spinning wheels, mm-hmm. and how do you create a capital-efficient business model? Mm-hmm. And then public market SaaS companies, um, what ones have you been most impressed with and why? We've seen, obviously, um, deterioration, I should say, in, in some of that performance recently, but who are you impressed with and why? Well, certainly Salesforce, right, being a $40 billion company and the largest SaaS company in the world, is impressive. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. Um, you know, I think of you know other companies. That, the category of companies that I like are businesses that tend to be um, either a system of record or core to workflow mm-hmm. uh, for a user. And so the types of companies that fit into that bucket are uh, businesses like Workday, right, which is a system of record, ServiceNow, which is uh, core to core to workflow and has built a, a beautiful business across enterprise, mid market, and, and, and SMBs um, capital efficiently. So. Uh, you know, any companies that fit into one of those two categories, I think, ha- is well positioned for success. Mm-hmm. And then your favorite SaaS blog or resource, what are the must reads for you? Uh, your podcast. Oh, thank Number you. one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you 20 bucks later. <laughs> um, no, other than my podcast, are there any must reads that come in your inbox or you have 20 minutes free in the office and you think, going to jump on? Yeah, uh, I do pay attention to, to Jason Lumpkin's work at, at Saster. Um, uh, I, I think it's high quality content. Obviously, uh, David Scott has, has done a, a really nice job mm-hmm. of creating reference material. Um, you, you know, I do tip my cap to the folks at Bessemer, who I think have uh, you know shared a lot of info on uh, unit economics as well as public comps that mm-hmm. uh, you know I, I use as reference as well. I also mind to um, Tom Tungus at Redpoint. I think his data heavy newsletters are just unbelievable. And then. Uh, SaaS scene in SF, good, bad, and ugly. What, what are your thoughts on the the scene in San Francisco? So, uh, what's fundamentally changed is distribution mm-hmm. um, and talent. So now I think is a better time than ever to create a company, and it's a better, it's a very exciting time to fund a Series A company because the the nature of go to market has changed. So I'm really excited. I think as a consequence of some of the devaluations we're seeing on public markets and and concerns we're hearing about in in late stage private markets, we're likely to see more talented individuals form teams and companies around pain points that they've um, lived and breathed, and they attempt to solve. So I think it's really an, an exciting time. And then also, uh, we're, we're sort of moving out of the, the quick fire and just to a final question on the future yeah. and what lies ahead. Um, so let's talk about index now and massive new fund. Absolutely, congratulations on that. Um, but what lies ahead for you? Where are you looking? Where are you excited? Are there any particularly underhyped segments that you're you're looking at, or just themes you're particularly interested in at the moment that you feel could and should deserve more attention? Yeah, I think, um, again, within security, we've uh, 
done a lot of work in uh, building a community of Fortune 500 and local executives um, across different departments that inform some of the sub-themes that we think about. Uh, those sub-themes include thinking through um, issues around a labor supply, right? Uh, uh, number two, net new attack surfaces, what those might be. Um, and number three, bringing an attack-driven mindset to security uh, to change like the nature of how uh, security occurs. So those are examples within security, which is not a new area for Index, where we've made you know 15 or so investments for the last 15 years. And um, in DevOps, similarly, it's I wouldn't consider it a net new area, uh, but we're going to double down on what we've seen uh, to be successful, and that is. Um, you know, serving a consumer that can be an entry point into a larger organization by delighting he or she with uh, value quickly um, and being uh, uh, meaningful to their daily life, either as a true system of record or part of their workflow. So for us, I think, you know, raising raising the new funds um, is kind of more of the same, right? We, we are supported by great LPs that um, um, I think are enthusiastic about our efforts to associate ourselves with great entrepreneurs. Uh, and as a consequence, every you know few years we're, we're fundraising. Um, so it's more of the same. The efforts that we're putting forward are double downing on, doubling down rather, uh, on our core strengths um, as opposed to fishing for, for uh, you know, entirely new adjacent areas. Well, Shadul, thank you so much for giving up the time today to be on the show. It's been such a pleasure having you. My pleasure, my man. Again, I'd like to say a huge thank you to Shadul for giving up his time today to be on the show. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you are loving the new podcast, then please do leave us a review on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference. And if you'd like to find out more, then head over to sasta.com. That's S-A-A-S-T-R.com. Or follow us on Twitter at Jason LK and at Harry Stebbins. We'd absolutely love to hear what you think. And we look very forward to bringing you the next episode on Friday with Mamoon Hamid at Social Capital.